You're listening to a message from Victory Church of the Bay Area. For more information, please visit us on our website at victoryus.org. time I was here. So uh, Pastor Neil and Blanche took me around a little bit. What a beautiful city you have. I'm not going to compare it to Vancouver, all it, but no, it's a, it's a beautiful city. And the time that we had together yesterday was just really, really refreshing. Uh, the faith, the humility, the passion for God that's in this community is really inspiring. And uh, I said it yesterday, I'll say it again today, that I think you won the lottery when instead of uh, Neil and Blanche going to Toronto, that you got them instead. I think you you got the prize. So uh, congratulations for that. I thought that it might be good to uh, introduce you to my family. We have have nine kids, and uh, that's all of us. Uh, We went for a, a road trip last summer all the way from Vancouver down to Phoenix, Arizona. And so my oldest son, Jonathan, the the ball guy, he called it, he says, it wasn't a vacation, it was an accomplishment. (laughs) When you have that many people all uh, together for that length of time. But but yeah, this is our family. So uh, my wife, Debbie, you can see in the middle there. She is uh, just an amazing woman. And uh, when you're in Canada or in America, I guess you don't have helpers. So uh, for her to take care of all these kids is a remarkable feat in in itself. We've been married for almost 30 years. It'll be 30 years this summer. So we're pretty excited about that. And then my son, Jonathan, he's 26. He's a youth pastor in another church in the city. He's still single. So ladies, uh, if you want his number, I'm I'm more than happy to, uh, to pass that on to you. I have no shame. And uh, I think I'm working harder for him getting married than he is, but... uh, but that's Jonathan, and then uh, Toby is the guy over here. He just turned 19 years old, and he's our snowboarding dude. Uh, if you say hi to him, he'll go, yo. And uh, he's just, he's a great kid. I love him a lot. He, we adopted him from birth. And then after Toby, we thought we couldn't have any children after Jonathan, and then we adopted Toby. And then we had two surprises in Tyler and Jessica, and they're over here on this side. Tyler's now uh, 16 years old. Jessica's 15 years old. And uh, they're just wonderful kids. Tyler wants to be a pastor already. And Jessica, she writes worship music and just has a beautiful heart. And then five years ago, we uh, became foster parents to four boys. Uh, They're uh, of Honduran descent. And those are the four boys that are kind of in the middle here. Noah, Isaac, Jamil, and then uh, down in the bottom here, Jonah. And they're just uh, tremendous boys. Uh, Jonah's just really cute. We uh, received him when he was uh, 16 months old. And so uh, one day we were going to church, and Jonah says to to Jessica, he says, you know, we're matching today. And Jessica says, what do, you, what do you mean we're matching? He says, well, your shoes are brown and my skin is brown. <laughs> so we're matching. I think that's just super cute. Anyways, and then uh, two years ago, Jessica's best friend, who's the cousin of our four foster boys, uh, we hate using that word foster, but we're a forever family, 
but is that uh, girl that's just next to me there. Her name is Naomi, and so she's been living with us for the last two years. And she's just a wonderful young girl, really loves Jesus. And uh, we really are a forever family. So I think there's, I don't know of another way to receive a child, but uh, we, I think we've covered all the different bases, but uh, we just love them dearly. Well, today we're going to be talking about love. And uh, this is a, a, a word that I don't think anybody disagrees with the idea of love. We all want to become more loving people. We want to receive love. We hope that we're in a loving society. If we go to church, that we're in a loving church community. And so we want to be able to, you know, say, yeah, love is a good thing. Well, we want to spend some time just exploring exactly what love is. And I think maybe a place to start is to ask, what is our life purpose? And I think uh, in society, people have different purposes as society develops. Here in North America, I think after the World War in the 1940s, if you ask somebody, what was your life purpose? It was really going to be about security. That the world was in such a volatile state at that time that what people wanted more than anything else was to have security. So they wanted to have a job that lasted forever. They wanted to have a nice little house with a white picket fence in front. And uh, job security meant a lot. And then as security was established, then in the 50s to 70s, I think people were really looking for success. I don't just want security. I want to do something that really matters in life. And so that became people's life purpose. And we see lots of the huge companies that are present today started during that time. And then in the 1980s, after people were successful, that became uh, less popular. And what people wanted then was self-fulfillment. And when you look at society today, I don't think that people care so much necessarily about how much money they make, although that's still motivating for some. But I want to be self-fulfilled. I want to know what my talents and strengths are. And I just want to experience a life of of meaning and purpose in a self-centered kind of way. So I don't know what, if I was to put a microphone to you, what would you say your life purpose is? Why do you think you were made by God? I think more specifically, how do we find out what our life purpose is? Maybe it can be trial and error. Uh, But I think that the best way to find out what our life purpose is, is to ask our creator, before I was a, uh, a pastor, I was a woodwork teacher. And so I built lots of furniture over the years. I built tasks and uh, wardrobes and cabinets and tables and chairs and all kinds of things. And uh, whenever I make something, I'm the creator of whatever I make. And whenever I make something, I never say, if somebody asks me, what did you make? I never look at it and go, wow, I don't know. I just had some spare time, I guess, and I, I don't know what that is. I have never, ever said that. If I'm going to put all the time and energy into building something, I'm going to build it for a purpose. And so imagine your complexity. And when God made you, he made you for a purpose, and he told you what that purpose is in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. And this is what it says. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, which means the whole Bible, hangs on these two commands. If you were to summarize what God made you for, is to have a love relationship with him and others. Love 
is our life purpose. God designed us for relationship. So no amount of security that they were looking for in the, in the 40s, no amount of significance, success, no amount of self-fulfillment can offset our need to love and be loved. This is what defines us. Therefore, the way that God wants us to evaluate our personal health is relationally. If I was to ask you the question, how are you, what would you say? You would say you are fine. The whole world is fine as far as I can tell. And so, but if I was to ask you a follow-up question, uh, why are you fine, what would you say then? Maybe you'd say, don't bug me. But uh, usually when people ask that follow-up question, why are you, you know, why are you fine? People will usually answer that question in kind of a, a self-centered way. Uh, you know, the sun is shining, the fog didn't come in today, there wasn't, the, the traffic wasn't uh, so bad, I got a seat on the, on the train, I got a raise, nobody hollered at me today. We usually define fine as to how nicely the world is revolving around us. When God defines fine, he defines it relationally. So, if he says, how are you doing, and we say fine, what he would assume that means is that we have a healthy relationship with God, our natural and spiritual family, and the world. That from God's point of view, doing well is a relational idea, not a self-centered idea. So from God's point of view, you and I are doing well when we have healthy relationships. So if relationship is that important, we need to then ask, what is love? What does love mean? Now, love is an easily misunderstood word. Some people describe love as a feeling. Have you thought that way? Maybe, you know, what is love? I, f I feel something. Where we have a deep attraction towards someone or something. Now, I hope that love is more than our latest feeling. As you saw on the screen, we have tons of teenagers. And uh, some of them are girls. And, uh, you know, uh, they'll come home from school and they'll say, I love so-and-so. And then the next day they go, I hate so-and-so. And so I hope that love is more profound than our latest feeling. Others describe love as an action where, you know, if you do this, this, and this, then you're loving. They say love is a behavior or love is a choice, some people say. But it's too simplistic to call one set of behaviors loving and another set of behaviors, unloving. It doesn't really work. So if I smile at you, smiling at you, am I, am I loving you or am I just nervous? How do you know, right? Uh, sex. Is sex always about making love? Well, no, there's this thing called rape. So it's too simplistic to say, if you do this, this, and this, you're always being loving, and if you do this and this, you're always unloving. It's too simplistic to talk that way. Here's the, I don't know if we have a drum roll, but here's the drum roll. More than, a, more than a feeling or an action, the Bible describes love as a motive. Love is a motive where we do something for the benefit of others. This is what 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says. Do everything in love. Love is a motive. And so if I say that I love you, it means that what I'm going to do next is for your benefit, not mine. Love is doing something for the benefit of another. This is what it means to love, where I'm putting uh, 
your concerns, what you value, what you want, I'm putting that ahead of my own values, my own desires, my own wants. This is what it means to love, to do something for the benefit of another. Therefore, it's not so much about how we feel or even exactly what we do. It is why we do it, or more specifically, for whom we do it. So love, from the Bible's point of view, is a motive, doing something for the benefit of God or for the benefit of others. This is what it means to love. Now, this definition helps explain a few things. And I just want to go through four things that I think this idea of love helps explain. First of all, it explains what the opposite of love is. If I go around sometimes to college campuses or uh, high school campuses and I, t I talk about love, I talk often about love, sex, and relationships. I remember one time I was, uh, it was an awkward title. It was Love, Sex, and Relationships with Dr. Greg. And that was just an awkward title. There was somebody who was looking lost out in the hallway, and, and uh, one of the leaders who was inviting people in says, are you looking for love, sex, and relationships? It was an awkward moment. But, uh, but when I go around and I'll, I'll ask people, I'll say, you know, what do you think the opposite of love is? And people typically say hate, right? The opposite of love is hate. For sure, that is not true. Because the Bible says that God hates things, but the Bible also says that God is love. So it's possible for hate and love to coexist. For example, I love my children. And so when I see them do something that's, uh, that's wrong, I, I hate what they do because I love them so much. Or I would hate a pedophile who would abuse my children. I would hate that because I love my children. Hate and love can coexist. What is the opposite of love then if it's not hate? It's sin. Let me give you a, a definition of sin that I think you will find helpful. Sin is whatever breaks relationship. For the longest time, I, I had no idea why God called one set of behaviors sinful and another set of behaviors righteous. I had no idea why he did that. I thought he had some cosmic whiteboard in the sky and he wrote down all the behaviors that humanity could commit and drew an arbitrary line down the middle and called one set loving and righteous and the other set unloving and sinful. And as I studied God's word over the years, it became obvious to me that when God calls something a sin, he calls it a sin because if you were to do that, you would break relationship either with him or with others. So he's actually being kind to let you know what sin is because if you participate in those things, you'll break relationship. And it's helpful to know then. I think of this fellow who came and lived with us once. We were having a, an evening service in a, in a church that I was uh, previously serving at. And a guy came in, and he said that he was, uh, he's from out of town. He just, he just came in. He has no money. He was going to just sleep out on the street. So Debbie and I looked at each other and says, well, hey, why don't you come and just stay with us? And he goes, you do that? I go, sure, why not? And he had a, he had a Jesus is Lord pen in his pocket. So we thought, well, he must be a nice guy if he has a Jesus is Lord pen. And so he came in and stayed with us, I think, for like four days. And then his way of saying thank you, I guess, was to steal my wife's purse in our car. And uh, call me judgmental, but our relationship just wasn't the same after that. 
there's something happens when someone steals your car that makes it difficult to walk in relationship. So whenever you do a sin, it's going to break relationship. And when you do something that's loving, it's going to bless and build relationship. In, uh, in parenting, what we do with our children is uh, when they're acting out and doing something that's inappropriate, this is what we always say. We go, what are you doing? And they say, uh, sitting on my brother. And then we, ask that, we always ask this question, is that loving? They go, no. And they go, well, what should you do? Get off my brother? Yes, what an outstanding idea. And so uh, love becomes a criteria to discover whether something is, is kind or not kind. But so the first point then is that the opposite of love is sin, and sin is whatever breaks relationship. Love is whatever blesses relationship. What is the law? Now, I don't know if you've read the Bible, but there's a few do's and don'ts when you read the Bible. And sometimes it can look kind of discouraging. Why does God list all these things that we should and shouldn't do? Well, the law describes what love generally looks like. It says the commandments in Romans 13, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So the law describes what love looks like, and God gives us a law so that we don't deceive ourselves. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, growing up, I didn't understand why sex outside of marriage was wrong. But it was a law. God says, don't commit adultery, don't have sex outside of marriage. And so I was married as a virgin, but I didn't get it. But over the years, as I did research, you'll find this interesting, that if you live with somebody before you get married, the divorce rate here in America is about, uh, is about 50%. In Canada, it's about 40%. If you get married out of a common law relationship, the divorce rate is now 80%. 80%. Now, that doesn't make sense, right? You think if you lived with somebody, you get to know them a little bit and discover whether you're compatible and then get married. You think that the odds were higher that you'd have a more successful marriage. Statistically, it's not true. The divorce rate's 80%. Now, listen to this. If you get married as a virgin, or what the literature calls a secondary virgin, which means that you were promiscuous, but you rededicated your life to being... Uh, to being pure and chaste. If you're married as a virgin, the divorce rate is 3%. Isn't that shocking? God knows what he's doing. He says, don't have sex outside of marriage. Not as some uh, way to be cruel and deny us of our pleasures. But he's saying, if you do this, you'll break relationship. And if you stay pure, you'll bless relationship. And he gives us the law to prevent us from deceiving ourselves into thinking what love is is and isn't. Let's look at perfection. What does it mean to be perfect? In Matthew 5, it says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then it goes on to say that you should have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Now, I've been to Israel a few times, and I've, uh, I've, I've seen Pharisees, and I've studied what Pharisees believe. I, I, I think I touched one once. I'm not sure. But... Uh, let me tell you, for sure, in terms of legalistic righteousness, 
for sure Pharisees are more righteous than anyone in this room. They have the first five books of the Bible memorized before 13 years old. It's just shocking how committed and devoted and they are. So what could it mean to have a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees? What does it mean to have a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees? It's love. Because the Pharisees' righteousness was all about themselves. Love is higher than legalistic righteousness. It's a greater love. It's the love of the Father. It's a self-giving, other-centered concern for others. This is what love is really about. This is a picture that my son, who's 26 years old, he drew that uh, last week. No, he was a little kid. He was a little kid. So take a look at this picture. Now, there's some issues. That's me looking rather large. I'm, uh, I'm choking my son, Jonathan. And uh, my wife is looking on in a see-through dress. So, you know, when you look at the picture, there's a few issues with it. Now, take a look at what he says. Me and you forever together. Here is a little picture for you to remember me when you're working. I hope you like it. You and Mommy are my best friends. I love you, Daddy. Now, from my point of view, is that picture perfect? It's perfect. I pray that you and I would have the courage to live like that. I studied some art history. And if you were Picasso or Van Gogh and you displayed a picture, I mean, you'd be proud to display that picture because you're good. Could we have the courage to love others in our imperfection? I think it's more genuine. It's less about our reputation and more just about caring for others. I think this is perfect. The humility and the other-centeredness that he drew that with makes it a perfect picture. The perfection that God invites you into is not to be legalistically perfect, to tick off the box, I've done everything right ever since I was a youth, one of the stories in the Bible says. No, God invites you to live a life that is given for the love of God and the love of others. That's perfection. And it might look sloppy, it might look messy, but God will say, ah, I'm so pleased. It's a beautiful love. It's a beautiful love. And finally, maturity. What does it mean to be mature? What, how, would you, how would you describe that? I think for uh, many Christians, maturity is about self-improvement. And maybe you think of Christianity this way. Maybe you became a Christian, and then uh, you heard it was a free gift. Great. I'm a Christian now. I'm loved by Jesus. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life becoming a better person. Have you, have you thought that, that that's what Christianity is about? I need to become better, better tomorrow than I am today than I was the day before. And we can view Christianity as a journey of self-improvement. Here's what's interesting about Christianity. Uh, Christianity is not about self-improvement. Did you know that? And if you know me, you'd probably confirm that this is true, but I stopped improving myself years ago. It's tiring. <laughs> Enjoy it much. Because what are you improving? Are you improving your sin nature? Are you improving that? If you improve your sin nature, it just means that you become a better sinner. Are you improving your new nature, how you're made new in Christ? Well, no, Christ has already done that for you. You're already made perfect. 
really, what Christianity is, is believing what's already true. You've already been made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You're already made new. Did you know that Christianity is simply believing what is already true? That you're already made new. That you're already uh, made beautiful by the love of God. And it's mostly about believing what's already true than about uh, trying to become a better person. All self-improvement does is make you focus on yourself. Don't bug me. I'm trying to become better now. And if you talk any longer, I'm going to get worse. So stop talking so I can be godly. I'm improving myself. This is really, really hard work. And so I just want to shut you all out while I'm improving myself. Who am I thinking about when I'm improving myself? Me. And love is about thinking about others. I love this quote. We, somebody helped me with it yesterday, but I have the quote written down here today. I love this quote by Woodrow Wilson, America's 28th president. I don't know anything about him except this quote. And so he must be a nice guy because I like the quote. If you think about what you should do for others, your character will take care of itself. Let me say that again. Isn't that a great quote? If you think about what you should do for others, your character will take care of itself. This idea of working on myself makes no sense. It's better to care about loving God and loving others or receiving love from God and others than working on yourself. And as you love God and love others, you become mature without even trying. We have a whole bunch of new moms in our, uh, in our church. You know, I'll ask them. I'll go, you know, what's motherhood like? And they go, wow, it's really challenging. I like sleeping. And I like, you know, just being able to, to do what I did before. Now my whole life revolves around this tiny little person. And I'll ask them, has it matured you? They go, oh, yeah. I didn't realize how selfish I was until I had a child. If you think about what you should do for others, your character will take care of itself. If you have an anger problem, uh, think less about overcoming your anger problem and think about the person that you're angry toward. Think about loving them, and your character will take care of itself. If you have a problem stealing, think about who you're stealing from. Have love for them, and your character will take care of itself. This idea of self-improvement is a secular idea to replace trusting in Jesus and loving others. Love is a better motivation than self-improvement. So, Pastor Neil, I hope this is okay, but I, I free you, I don't know, in the name of Jesus or something, from self-improvement. It's super tiring. I've already given up. I encourage you to do the same. Don't bother being better. Just think about loving others. Think about loving God, and you'll do just fine. There's this uh, quote by Augustine that says, Love God and do as you please. Isn't that a great quote? Because if your heart is toward loving God, if your heart is toward loving others, then do whatever you want. And odds are very, very high that you'll be fulfilling all of the commands that you find in God's word because you're being other-centered. You're worshiping and glorifying God. Love is so helpful when it becomes our, love, our, our life motive. So in conclusion, what then is our life purpose? This is the question that we started with. What is our life purpose? Notice that our life purpose is not what we do, it is why we do it. It's not what we do. 
Some people think that they, they say, what is my life purpose? My life purpose is to become a doctor or a lawyer. Or um, most people don't say this, but my life purpose is to become a plumber. Is your life purpose, what's your job? Are you a receptionist? You a nurse? What's your life purpose? If your life purpose is only your job, then that means that you're only fulfilling your life purpose for 40 to 60 hours a week. What are you doing well the rest of the time? You know, our life purpose can't be reduced to a job or a career. Or my life purpose is to, is to play a musical instrument, to worship Jesus. Well, how, you know, they did that for half an hour. What are you doing for the rest of the week? Practice a little, but really, if that's your life purpose, then what are you doing for all the rest of the time? It's not comprehensive enough to describe our life purpose in terms of an activity. Here's what's remarkable. Your life purpose is a life motive. And this means that no matter what you do, whether it's changing diapers, nobody, I've never heard anybody say, my life purpose is to change diapers. I've never heard anybody say that. This is what I've been called to do by Jesus Christ. Ah, but your life purpose is to love your child. And so when you change diapers for the love of your child, you're fulfilling your life purpose. When you walk in here and you're kind and warm to people that you don't know, you're fulfilling your life purpose. You're loving God and you're loving others. When you walk down the street and open a door for somebody, when you share the good news of Jesus Christ with somebody, when you're kind towards your spouse or your children or your parents, you're fulfilling your life purpose. Your life purpose is a life motive. And you get to do that always. Not just when you're working, not just when you're in your favorite hobby. Your life purpose can change all that you do. I pray that Christianity will never be more complicated than this. That all you're to do is to give and receive the love of the Father. And as all of your life is, comes under that banner, you're fulfilled. And you're living out your purpose. It redeems, this life purpose redeems all that we do, even painful things. As Pastor Neil talked about at the beginning of the service, where there's difficult things in our life. When you receive and give the love of God in even the most painful parts of your life, that part has now become redeemed. Because it says that only three things remain, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these being love. As you give and receive the love of God in a difficult moment, that love now has that a moment of time, that pain now has eternal value because love has been injected into that moment. Isn't this great? So you always get to be fulfilled. Cleaning garbage, trash, you get to be fulfilled. Playing worship, fulfilled. Becoming a doctor, fulfilled. Becoming a receptionist, fulfilled. Changing to, it doesn't matter. When love is the umbrella under which you live your life, you're living out the plans and purposes of God. And in that place, you find the peace and the joy that you've always longed for. So let me encourage you that love is the greatest of these. And as love defines your life, you've been defined by Jesus. Can I pray for us in this regard? 
You know, I think that people sometimes divide their life between, before I pray, between love and selfishness. I'm loving and then I'm selfish. I think it's better to define our life between sometimes we give love, sometimes we receive love. And Father, I pray now for each person here that love would be the thing that would define their life, the love of God. Sometimes we receive, sometimes we give, but it's always about love. Father, I pray that love would become more attractive than selfishness, that we would hate our sin because it breaks relationship. We would hate the selfishness that we run after and that instead we would seek to receive love instead of simply being selfish. I pray that you would inspire us to grab hold of the love of God and have it define all that we do and who we are. We thank you for love. We thank you that you loved us first and we receive that love and out of the love that we've received from you, we now generously give to others. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you.